At the end of chapter 9, we have seen John receive a little scroll from the angel. He ate it, as he was directed to do, and it tasted sweet in his mouth, but turned bitter in his stomach. Somewhat like Ezekiel, back in the Old Testament. Then John was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. After this, John is given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, there are a lot of writings, both Old Testament and extra-biblical, that talk about measuring the temple and Jerusalem. One Old Testament passage is Zechariah 2, verses 1 to 5. The prophet writes, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run! Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. As in John 11, there's no actual measuring recorded here in Zechariah. Another Old Testament passage is Ezekiel. Verses 40 to, or chapters 40 to 48, where the prophet is given a vision of a man measuring the temple. In Ezekiel, the temple is measured, but it is a temple that no one on earth has ever seen. Ezekiel is told that he is to describe this temple to the people of Israel so that they would be ashamed of all their iniquities and no longer defile God's holy name. The people were living in Babylon, literally, and many of them had adopted its ways. The measuring of this temple provided a way for God's people to know the holy standards for them and to help them be people fit for God's presence in their midst. Now, there are a number of views of what John is talking about here. Some believe that he is talking about the temple that was destroyed in A.D. 70. And a lot of that hinges on when you believe John wrote the book of Revelation, before or after that temple was destroyed. Others believe that this is a temple that is yet to be built at the beginning of the tribulation period. Still others, including yours truly, believe that the temple is referring to the people of God. In Ezekiel, the temple was not a physical temple. That had already been destroyed. If John wrote Revelation after A.D. 70, there was no physical temple to measure. I don't believe that John is writing about a temple to be built before the tribulation. Both Peter and Paul state that the body of Christ, believers, are the temple of God. Now, some would object that a temple is necessary in the tribulation for Israel to renew the sacrifices and by that be brought to faith in the Messiah. Well, my question would be, why? 
Jews before A.D. 70 came to Christ the same way that those after A.D. 70 did, through hearing that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of all their prophecies. He was the Messiah. If Jews today come to faith in Christ, it is without any sacrifices being made in a physical temple. The book of Hebrews states that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for us and that there is no need for sacrifices. That's basically the point of the book, that Christ is better than the Old Covenant and its system. And remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Jews who were being tempted to go back to the Old Temple system. Now, there are rumblings in Israel about a temple being constructed in Jerusalem. If that's what Israel wants to do and really tick off the Muslims, uh, that's their business. I don't believe that a temple and everything that goes with it is a necessity for Israel to be brought into the fold of true Israel. I believe that the temple is those who measure or who worship the true God. And that measuring means evaluating, as it did in Ezekiel. And it can also mean preservation. It's possible that the outer court, which was not supposed to be measured, signifies those who are in the visible church, but are not true followers of the Lamb. The outer court is to be given to the nations, who will trample the holy city for 42 months, or 1260 days, or three and a half years, or a time, times, and half a time. Now, there are a number of views on this period of time. Some believe that it's a symbolic of a limited amount of time, possibly derived from Daniel 7.25, which speaks of the three and a half years of terror under Antiochus Epiphanes, when the temple was desecrated. Some believe that it's a literal temple that will be trampled by the forces of the Antichrist during the second half of the tribulation period. Now, figuring out what John means with the time period gets really complicated because it depends on which calendar you use. And evidently, there are several. There's a lunar calendar, which was 29 or 30 days, sometimes 31 in a month. The Jews who used to keep this calendar had to add a month every once in a while. There was no set time, but they had to add a month periodically to keep things straight. Excuse me. There's a solar calendar with 30 days each month and then a day added every quarter and then one day added every four years. Today we call that leap year. There's even another solar calendar that straightens out the days in a different way. The Essenes at Qumran used a solar calendar, and they believed that the Jews in Jerusalem who used the lunar calendar were apostate. It's one of the reasons why they split off and went to live in the desert. Some of the calculations I looked at with the different calendars are very mind-numbing 
So I'm not going to afflict you with any of that stuff. I mean, if you want something or you can get lost down a rabbit hole, and uh, don't do it. Don't do it. Speaking of the different time periods in chapters 11 to 14, a commentator by the name of Sweet writes, the time limit serves, of course, further purpose than just to synchronize the several periods and to compare them with the greatest crisis through which the Jewish people passed between the exile and the fall of Jerusalem. Not setting a certain period, but comparing the events that happened at different times. In verses 3 through 6, we see two witnesses who are going to prophesy for a period of time. Who are these two prophets? Some believe that they are Moses and Elijah, or Enoch and Elijah, and that they have the power to kill with fire coming out of their mouths, to turn water to blood, and to keep rain from falling. Others see them as symbolic of the church bearing faithful witness throughout the ages, with the number two supporting the faithfulness of its testimony. In John 8.17, Matthew 18.16, Deuteronomy 17.6, and 19.15, all speak of the testimony of two as true. The witnesses are clothed in sackcloth, as they preach repentance. They are called two olive trees and two lampstands. This harkens back to Zechariah 4. Zechariah is told that the two olive trees are, in the Hebrew, the sons of oil who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The lampstands and the olive trees in in Zechariah's vision are the ministries of Zerubbabel, the leader of the people, and Joshua, the faithful priest. Zerubbabel and Joshua brought the people out of Babylon, and these two witnesses in Revelation are revealing the evil of Babylon to those in the church who have been infected by Babylon's ways. Now the witnesses have powers that are reminiscent of Moses and Elijah. I don't believe that literal fire comes out of their mouths. It wouldn't surprise me if God did that, but I don't believe that's what's going to happen. But John is speaking of the word of God that the witnesses are speaking. It's like a consuming fire. The witnesses' message is like that of Elijah. And is designed to bring those who hear it to a for or against decision. Is God the king or is Caesar Babylon? The prophet Malachi prophesied, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And as we'll see in coming chapters, the day of the Lord is going to be dreadful. Moses announced the judgments that were to come upon Egypt, including water being turned into blood. And these two witnesses announced God's judgments on those who continue to reject him. And as we've already seen, many of the judgments and the plagues involve water and blood. 
Just as Pharaoh and Ahab were incensed with the pronouncements of Moses and Elijah, so too will Babylon be beside itself at the message of the witnesses. The beast that comes from the abyss wages war on the witnesses and kills them. Now, abyss could be translated sea. I saw in some translations the beast that came from the sea because the sea was seen as an abyss. One of the reasons why the disciples were so scared to death when they were in storms on the Sea of Galilee because they were on the abyss. It's a place of chaos. There's been a lot of ink spilled to try to figure out what this beast is. Well, I believe that this first beast is power. In this case, the military power of Rome in John's day. Or any of the other empires that have tried to throw their weight around in order to get their way. In God's providence, the witnesses are killed when they finish their testimony. Now, it does seem that there will come a day when the powers of empire and the power behind them will seemingly defeat the church. Whether that will be in our day or in the future, we sure don't know. It could also be speaking of times throughout history when it seemed as if the church was finished. But after three and a half days, sound familiar? Long enough for folks to think that they are quite dead and gone. The witnesses are raised to life and ascend to heaven. Within the hour, there is a great earthquake. A tenth of the city is destroyed, and 7,000 people are killed. Might ask, well, why not the whole city? Why not everybody being killed? Well, even in the midst of this great judgment, God is still showing mercy. These people who are left alive give God glory. I don't believe that you can truly give God glory unless you have become one of his. So I think this is a a case of people being converted, turning to the true Messiah. They were, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Remember what happened back in Egypt when Pharaoh was finally broken by the 10th plague and let the Israelites go. And when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and God sent fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifices, the people exclaimed, the Lord, he is God. In chapter 5 of Revelation, John hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. When he looks, he sees the lamb that was slain. Jesus has conquered his enemies by dying for them. The two witnesses conquer by dying for their enemies. We don't see any turning to God throughout the plagues until these two witnesses die for their enemies. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs or any accounts of martyrs in this century. When those martyrs are killed, people turn to Christ. 
As church father Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now in verse 14, John writes, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The second woe happened in chapter 9. So this is chapter 11, so it's been a while. The first two woes brought great destruction and misery, but not repentance. It took the witness of the followers of the Lamb dying for repentance to happen. For those who still have hardened their hearts and are refusing to bow to the true king, one final woe is coming. It's almost time for the day of the Lord when Christ comes back as the conquering king and destroys his enemies, consummates his kingdom here on a new heavens and a new earth. In the meantime... We still keep on. The church, and I put it in quotes for a reason, seems to have thrown in its lot with Babylon to a great degree. We have traded the gospel for psychology, for comfort, for philosophies of this world, for power, or any number of things. There are numerous accounts on both sides of the political aisle of people taking scripture and twisting it to fit their agenda. Speaking of sides, really I think that's one of the biggest indicators that the church in the West is following the ways of Babylon. Rather than being unified in the gospel and pledging our allegiance to the Lamb, we give our lives over to a search for power and influence. We forget that Caesar is not king, whether his name is Biden, Trump, Putin, McMaster, or any other political figure. Jesus is the true king, and he is coming back. The church is called to rid ourselves of the ways of Babylon, and to be a faithful witness. Now, we will be hated by some, but let it be for faithfully proclaiming the message that Jesus is the true king, rather than for seeking influence and power. May God help us to be faithful in spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and showing it in our day-to-day lives. Let's pray.